Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. Arsecast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, good morning to you, or as somebody on the Discord said, sadly morning. Sadly morning. It is the morning. That mm. much we know. The quality of the morning is open to some debate. Hey, look, when we get when we get our other mornings back, the morning will be much better. That's what I'm thinking. Right. The other aspects right. of morning that we're missing, as soon as they come back, everything will be... Perfect. It'll be a goodly morning again. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. That, we, we don't have some key breakfast ingredients. Exactly. Exactly. We've got some some oats, and we've got a bit of gone off milk, and mm. some old coffee grounds. Actually, we don't even have that. We've got some some like hickory chips or or some whatever. unripened fruit. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and we're trying to cobble something together. Yeah, but we but we spent 130 million on these breakfast bits. We did, yeah. It was quite a lavish shot, um, <laughs> and we've not returned <laughs> with anything particularly nutrition. <sighs> okay, look, we could drag this one out. Tell me this: you were there yesterday. It was Arsenal nil, Chelsea two, first home game of the season. Before we delve into the the nuts and the bolts of all of what went on. What was it like there? What was it like being back? I know there were fans back for the Brighton game at the end of last season, but this feels like proper back, if you know what I mean. Like, take that back. Definitely. For, for good, just so yeah. people know. Uh, it, it was fantastic, actually, and it's sort of a shame that we probably won't spend more time reflecting on that big positive because... It was brilliant to see the stadium full. I was not in the press box. I was in my season ticket. I saw a lot of familiar faces, people I know, um, and I had a hug with Gunnosaurus. I mean, genuinely, oh, wow. it was, yeah, fantastic. I didn't social distance from that dinosaur. I, I was sucked into his uh, warm embrace. He's wearing a mask. He's wearing a mask. He's, I believe he's double jabbed. Um we don't. We're not even sure that dinosaurs can carry the virus. So it was. Um, it, yeah, it was. It was great. And that first ten minutes or whatever mm. it was, fifteen minutes of the game was rocking. It was electric. You know, Martin Odegaard was out on the pitch. Got a brilliant welcome. People were in the ground really early because there was kind of anxiety over whether or not the new digital season tickets would work. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, people had to kind of. Uh, pile into the ground uh, earlier than they normally would but that led to kind of building up the atmosphere and uh, people 
you know, getting on board. Um, it was just great. And I really, really did love being back there among the fans. Obviously, we didn't get the result or the game that we wanted. But that element of it was superb. And if by chance at some point we do win a game this season, it's going to be a really good feeling. <laughs> yeah, look, I have to say on TV, it came across really well. Did it? And yeah, good. it did. It did. You know, it came across like people were behind the team. They wanted the team to do well. Um, you know, the I think everyone was realistic about, you know, what was going to happen yesterday or, or what the chances of Arsenal winning were. And that's, I think, something that we're going to discuss now in a moment. But even when Chelsea went ahead, you know, the crowd responded. I know there were some boos at halftime and boos at the end, but I think those were those were not really aimed at the the performance Per se, I think it was more a general statement about where we are. During the 90 minutes, it came across very clearly that the, cl- uh, the crowd were behind the team. They wanted the team to do well. They were supporting mm. the team. And even afterwards, there was a, you know, there's a lot of questions um, for Mikel Arteta to answer about, you know, what he's doing and what he's not doing and what the team are doing, et cetera, et cetera. And even he, I think, dealt quite well with a question from Jeff Shreves afterwards who said, you know, you, you said you wanted the crowd behind you, but, you know, there were boos at halftime and boos at the end. And I think he dealt with that pretty well. I don't know if you've seen it. He was just saying, look, I never got the sense that the crowd weren't behind the team during the game, which is what you want from supporters during the game. At the end of the game, people can, you know, express themselves the way that they want. Um, but, you know, as 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 difficult as it was, and on a day when the t- the team itself didn't give supporters a great deal to be excited about, I think the most energized they got was when Kieran Tierney went running down to chase uh, <laughs> yeah. to chase the ball and didn't get the ball in the end. But you know that was kind of the biggest cheer of the day, which says a lot about what the team delivered. You know, I think it's to the fans' credit that they were so supportive. Um, you know, on the day, so it did sound good. Oh, I'm glad about that. Yeah, and I, and I kind of feel for people who aren't, people who get to the ground regularly or very often t- at all, I wonder how much of a boon or how much of a difference it makes to have those stands full. So I'm glad it translated. Um, and yeah, that, that really was the thing that, you know, I took away from yesterday, feeling good about uh, everything else mm. you know, was, was not ideal. Even if it was um, not entirely unexpected as well, you know? That's true. That is true. And this is where I'm wrestling with things at the moment because, you know, there's a logical part of my brain. I see where we are. I see what we've got to do. I see, you know, why we are where we are. And I, I you know, obviously there's a lot of focus on Mikel Arteta, but I think a lot of what, uh, of where we are is not just on him. You know, there are uh, a lot of things that have happened over the last number of years that have us where we are right now. And he's responsible for what happens on the pitch. He picks the team, et cetera, et cetera. But this this sort of sense of realism is painful. And I really genuinely dislike all of it. You know, going into mm-hmm. a game against Chelsea, I know they're better than us. They've got better players. They're a more developed team. They've got like their bench yesterday was fucking ridiculous. It was ridiculous when you looked at what was going on. Like if by chance Arsenal had, you know, taken a lead or or were hanging on to a lead, look at what they had to try and change the game on the bench. Um, 
you know, it's absurd, really, to, to compare. And you could see the gulf was there yesterday. But this this idea that we're sort of, as Arsenal fans, as Arsenal Football Club, writing off games before they happen, even if there's good reason for it, I find it very difficult. I, I, I don't like it at all. Um, but I didn't write it. I, I, I thought I, I did that fan thing of kidding myself. Arsenal could get something from this, you know, like that's... Um, and of course they could have done, you know, if the, if the, if the game, if certain incidents go a different way, anything mm. can happen out on the pitch. I think it's, I don't think we should be writing it off. I agree. But I don't think, I don't think people would be as hurt as they are if they had written it off. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I do think there was an, a sense of inevitability about it, though, that, that nobody really believed we would win or could win. I think there was hope. And when you get into mm. the stadium on a sunny day and you've got 60,000 people there around you, and, you know, certainly when the game kicked off uh, and I was watching it and I could hear the songs and I could hear the crowd get behind the team, you, you do hope. But I don't really think there was a great deal of belief and I've seen a lot of discussion Maybe about how, funny. about how well, look, the season really starts when the transfer window ends. You know, we're not going to get anything from Manchester City. There's no way. I mean, we don't get anything from Manchester City. It's been a long time. And again, we're in a, a similar kind of situation where, where you know, the, the gulf between the two teams, even with all our players available, is big. So, mm, you know, mm. this, this idea that, okay, look, we'll just get beyond the Man City game and then it becomes a little more manageable when you've got Norwich at home and then I think it's Burnley and then there's the, the North London derby. So you're looking to, to start your season. I just find it difficult to, to, to get my head around that's where we are as a football club. And I, I again... I get it. I understand it. I see the problems. I know we've got a lot of work to do to get back to where we want to get to, but it, it hurts. It hurts. Yeah, I think that's natural, isn't it? I mean, it's like, yeah. it's it's um, the tension between expectation and reality. Mm. You know, as Arsenal fans, particularly Arsenal fans who lived through a very successful period in the club's history. And I'm not just talking about Arsene Wenger there, really. If you look at Arsenal kind of from the late 80s through to, uh, you know, 2005 or whatever it mm. is, Arsenal won a lot of trophies in that period of time. And, you know, along with Manchester United, were probably the dominant force in English football through that period. And it was a long period. Uh, we had dips, but they were brief. Yeah. Um, and now we are in a more, I think we're in a more pronounced dip. Rot. In a very different landscape where we aren't one of those two mm. big clubs that will just sort of manage to be there by, yeah, yeah, by yeah. crook. You know, we are probably at best um, the fifth or sixth best team. I think that's and generous. Yeah, yeah, at best, I mean. Mm. And in all reality, according to the league table, kind of the eighth best team. And I think that inevitably that makes fans feel um, bad because they have been reared or come to experience or expect a degree of success that currently... Uh, I, I don't think we're capable of um, attaining right now. Like, I think even the best outcome of this season is going to make fans feel shit 
quite a lot of the time. What do you think that best possible outcome for this season is? Like, if you're probably saying fifth, probably fifth in the league. That's the absolute best that we could do. Well, no, 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 no. I mean, I no, I'm not disagreeing with you because I think that that's probably right. Yeah, there's a chance of something better, of course, but I'm saying like mm. that I think is sort of realistic, but would still be you know a, a sort of the high end of of probability. Do you, do, I, I, mm. Fifth, I think, is probably. Do you think that the would best make we can hope for people feel shit? Because I think that would actually make people feel quite good. Like if you offered me fifth now. I'd bite your hand off for it because I could see, like, if you're finishing fifth in a league where, you know, we know who the big teams are, but West Ham are looking good and Leicester are a decent team and, and blah, 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 blah. It would certainly indicate some progress, wouldn't it? That, that you know, A, we might be able to score a goal. B, we might win the odd game here and there. And we've probably got more points this season than than last season. So that would be, by any tangible metric, um, progress. So I would definitely take that. I, I'm not quite as... Um, I, I think I agree with you that that's the best, best, best we could do if everything goes as well as it can over the next number of months. But I'm I'm not convinced um, we can get that high. But I, I think when, when I say it make people feel shit, I, I think, yes, you can sit back from it and say, oh, that sounds good, but... It might involve losing twice, twice to Chelsea, mm. or it might involve losing a North London derby, or it might involve getting beat in games you don't expect to get beat. I mean, we could finish fifth and lose a dozen games, and each one of those will make fans feel shit. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Like, what I mean is no, I know, there'll yeah, be yeah. points along the journey which will feel like, ugh, this is not mm. good. How? But, yeah. Yeah. How, we may be at one of those points. Yeah, we may be. I mean, how do you how do you uh, how do you rationalize or come to terms with stuff like when you go into the the game yesterday, I thought we were going to get beaten before the game because of their strength, because of the players we had missing, because of our 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 general uh, weakness in comparison to this Chelsea side at this moment in time, right? Mm-hmm. I thought we would get beaten. The logical part of my brain tells me that. So I try and come to terms with it and think, okay, well, how? what can we take from this game that might be encouraging, blah, blah, blah. But even if you, even if you steal yourself for a result, if it's expected, you still have to deal with the emotion of, of losing the short term. Like you can say, I think we were going to lose this game, but it's still really painful to lose it. You know what I mean? It is, mm-hmm. it's hard to marry those two things at times. It is. There's no, there's, and that's, I'm, I can't, I lose count the amount of times we had this conversation last season about how it, impossible it is in football to balance long term with short term because the short term emotion of winning or losing trumps everything mm. and that that is the problem that Arsenal have right now in my opinion you know they have committed to a strategy if you look at their transfers this summer for example and the contracts they've given to younger players where clearly there is an emphasis on the long term mm. and to a certain extent to a certain extent fans have shown in the past they are prepared to buy into that however that was in a period you know, say post the Emirates Stadium move where there were only really four D 
decent teams in England. Mm. <laughs> and and Arsenal, you know, they could afford to kind of get by as the fourth and it kept them in the Champions League. It kept them relevant. The situation now, the context now is different. There are at least six teams, probably more like seven or eight, competing for those spots. And so the the, the kind of baseline of Arsenal's possible outcomes for this season mm. is substantially lower. And it, it's very... It, 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 there is just a massive tension at play between the idea of kind of patience and the reality of what losing games feels like. Mm. And uh, it, it's what makes managing a football club a very difficult job. And and I'm not sure that there is a way to resolve those two. The only way to kind of resolve that tension is to, is to get, you know... I, I guess for Arsenal, it's to get sixth place. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's to get the sort of minimum... There's a minimum level that fans will ex- accept while you're kind of going through this process of regeneration. And if you fall beneath that, I don't think any amount of, mm. sort of patience or youth development or any of those things yeah. is going to save you. Well, look, let's let's talk the game. And I thought the first few minutes were, were, were okay. You know, pretty bright. We didn't have... Um, a lot of players who, who we know, but I don't know that there's much point in dwelling on, on the players that we didn't have. We all know that. We all understand that. Ben White was absent with COVID, probably not going to be available for um, the Man City game. Mm. Were you surprised that we didn't go with a back three, even though Ben White was absent? Yeah, I, th- I wonder if White had been fit, would we definitely have done? I mean, it's what I would have done mm. uh, to match up Chelsea. But, uh, and, you know, even without White, like you say, there were other options. You could have brought Callum Chambers in. You could have had Kieran Tierney as a third centre-half. Um, you could have played somebody like Tavares or Maitland yeah. Niles or whoever as a left wing-back. There were ways you could do it. I think on reflection that would have been better. But I think almost anything would have been better than what the, the, than the defensive mistakes that we made. I mean, they were kind of identical, um, Chelsea's goals, in that they came via that overlap on the right-hand side. Yeah. And I've watched it and watched it, and I still can't quite... I mean, we're so far from defending it that it's it's almost impossible to work out who was supposed to be there <laughs> because there's nobody near. Yeah. Um, I but mean, we'll come on to that with the girls, I guess. But yeah. yeah it, the defensive shape didn't uh, work at all. No, it didn't. And I think this is one of the issues that I have with, with yesterday, even rationalising Chelsea's strength and our you know relative weakness for all the reasons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The fact that we didn't react to that threat quickly enough is is, you know, we can talk about quality all we want, but managers can deal with golfs in quality by setting up their teams through organization, uh, you know, shape, Mm. defensive shape. How many times have we seen a really, really good Arsenal side struggle to break down? Now, it hasn't happened in the the very recent past, but, you know, it used to be a case that you'd have an Arsenal side chock full of, like, great attacking talent struggling to break down a Blackburn or a Birmingham or or Mm. somebody Mm. like that because... They were organized defensively, um, particularly when Arsenal got into the final third, right? Mm. So it's not a case... I mean, they often did sit with just men behind the ball. And I realize that it's 
you know, it's maybe a difficult way to play when you're at home the first game of the season um, and all that. But the fact that we didn't react or Arteta didn't react to the threat of Reese James down the right-hand side where he had the freedom of the Emirates Stadium, basically, to do what he wanted in that, that opening 45 minutes anyway, was... I think that's one of the big criticisms I have of yesterday. I would have played with a back three. I think the decision to to play Pablo Marie um, one-on-one basically with Lukaku was was ridiculous. Um, but that, that Reese James thing, and Arteta didn't react anywhere near quickly enough to sort that out. And from there, both Chelsea goals arrived. Yeah, I think we need to look at the players as well in that one. I mean... No, you know, nobody wants to criticise Bukayo Saka, but he's nowhere on those. And for me, if Tierney is under instruction to tap in, uh, to tuck in rather, which it seems is the case because both on both goals he folds yeah. into a very central position, you know, the, the guy who's playing in front of him has got to come back. And he's miles away, absolutely miles away. And and, and listen, it might I might be wrong. It might be that Granite Shack is supposed to fold out there, but that would... That would be a bit odd, to be honest. I just think, you know, I accept that there was a risk there, but, and maybe Arteta should have changed it, but also players have got to track their men. And yeah. I'm looking, Arsenal didn't do that. I'm looking here at where Saka is, and I think he's he's on Jorginho in the, for the second goal. He's on Jorginho. And he's in the middle of the thing. Chelsea work it. But yeah. There's way too I, I, I mean, that, that, that can't be right. Like, no. Well, yeah, that can't be right because Arsenal have got two central midfield players. You know, somebody, if Tierney is going to go inside as that centre-half, someone needs to go with him. And, and mm. listen, Saka can get away with anything. He's untouchable and I completely understand why. I feel the same. But, you know, that was really poor, I mm. think. Um and, you know, he's not a defender and blah, blah, blah. And, and that aspect of the game, he'll improve. But, yeah, for that to happen twice, maybe Arteta should have done something. You know, he's got options. He could... Uh, it could be as simple as having a word with Saka, mm. you know, and saying, look what's happening behind you. Or switching things around to put another player on the left-hand side who might um, give a bit more defensively. It's not like Saka, really. And that's why I'm sort of scratching my head about it. But um, it felt like Tierney... It, the, what it ended up looking like on, in both instances was like Tierney had kind of gone rogue by filling in as a centre-half. Yeah. I just don't believe... I just can't imagine that he would. But yeah. but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was, you know, a case of firefighting. I don't I don't yeah. quite know, but... Um, yeah. He wasn't happy, Tierney. I mean, he was throwing his arms around a lot in that first half. So something wasn't working out. Um, mm. And he was having a difficult game a very difficult game himself. But yeah, I would have gone three at the back. I wonder why he didn't. I I feel like, again, to sort of return to that short-term versus long-term thing, you know, there was such criticism last season of what's the identity? Why are we still persisting with three at the back? It almost feels like he's now like tried to move on from that and is reticent to go back. But yesterday was definitely a day to do it. Mm. Well, I mean, look, what's the identity is still a, a valid question, I think, because we're not really sure of what it is anymore. Um, no. So that's that's a, another question. The first goal, 
Um, look, Pablo Marie statistically had quite an interesting game. When you look at the stats, I think he had um, four tackles, which was as much as anybody else in the team, four block shots, two interceptions, three clearances. Statistically, you know, it, it looks like he had a good game. Your eyes, though... Not from where I was sat. <laughs> no. Not from where anyone was... Anyone looking at it would go, oh, my God, this guy got absolutely ruined by Lukaku. Yeah. Ruined. And this is why I think, um, you know, I'm not excusing his performance in any way because it was really poor. And I think as time goes on, we're seeing that this is a guy who should be at very best back up. And I think he's quite lucky to be that. Um you know, at a club like Arsenal, there were always doubts for me over his career trajectory and the, and the pathway that he took to Arsenal. Um, simply because it's so unconventional, I don't really understand how a player of his age could could make that move. But, you know, maybe there are things we could discuss another day on that. But he was destroyed by Lukaku. On that first goal in particular, it was just so easy. Um, you know, he received the ball with his back to goal, held him off. And from there, like, I know he's strong and I know he's fast and I know he's powerful and I know he's like a a striker at peak age, at the top of his powers and all the rest. But I think Pablo Marie was just weak and slow, didn't read the situation at all. You know, he was slow to react when Lukaku ran towards goal. He wasn't the right side of him. He decided he would try and get a free kick by falling over. I don't think Lukaku had to do an awful lot to, to you know, flatten him. He didn't really flatten him. Marie just fell over looking for a free kick. So it really was terrible defending. Yes, I, it was a, a ragdolling of Pablo Marie. Mm. Um I do think better defenders than Pablo Marie will struggle against Lukaku. He just mm. looks to be at the absolute peak of his powers and he looks quite a frightening prospect for the rest of the Premier League. But yeah, he he was, well, from, from where I was sat and from what I could see, he was way off it. And I think maybe he is good enough to be, you know, our fourth centre-half. Um, the problem is, mm-hmm. at the present time, we have to keep playing him. And, you know, I know people talk about Ben White being out. I have to be really honest and say I'm not sure Ben White would have lived with Lukaku either based on what I saw at Brentford. No, no, uh, no. I mean, that's fair. But maybe, you know, again, coming back to the back three thing, Ben White in the back three might have been. Yeah. I, I think Gabriel is the guy who physically, you know, could live with Lukaku. Um, he's the only centre-half I think we've got who has the athleticism required mm. to kind of go shoulder to shoulder with him. And we've seen him have good games against, um, you know, the kinds of centre forwards who want to pin their man before. Mm. Uh, But yeah, Lukaku, Lukaku played from the first minute like a guy who knew he had the better of his marker. Mm. And, you know, you could see the confidence flowing through him every time he held the ball up or turned Marie or, you know, just nudged ahead of him in the box. And it just grew and grew and grew. And, it was a, yeah, it was a, a bad day for Pablo Marie. Really, really bad, it was, I think. Yeah, it was, it was Drogba Senderos, but worse. Yes, it was. And I mean, Senderos has the excuse that he was a, a very young player at that time, you know. But it, it was eerily reminiscent of the way Drogba tortured Arsenal. Um, mm. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, I saw a tweet from Tim Stillman saying he thinks that Chelsea buying Lukaku might grant them the league. And I, I said, replied saying it does have that slight feel of when Van Persie went to Man U. They've just added, they've plugged in a kind of 30 goal striker. Yeah. Um, you know, it just felt like he'd been playing there forever yesterday. But for us, it was uh, kryptonite essentially. Mm. And I, I worry a little bit about what it might do to Pablo Marie's confidence. You know, I think it was a, a heavy beating he took from Lukaku. Well, it's the kind of performance that should, um, you know, under normal circumstances, see you out of the team for a while, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. The issue is, of course, we don't know quite how soon Gabriel is going to be back. And man, we really need him to be good. We really need so Gabriel he, to be good. He trained on mm. Saturday, I believe, but he's not played football for quite a while now. Yeah. So um, I think it'll be touch and go for next weekend. I don't think he'll be ready for, yeah. for Wednesday night. Maybe the only thing you would say about Pablo Marie is that he's of a certain age that he might be able to compartmentalise uh, that performance if he is uh, if he is picked for yeah. next week. And, and like I say, I think it will happen to better players. Um, it just so happened that he was first and it was particularly uh, pronounced, mm. the, the sort of gap between the two players. Let's think about some other stuff from this game. Should we have had a penalty? Do you know what? I went to get a drink. <laughs> Uh, I have seen it since, and yes. But I, about 40 minutes, uh, it was 2-0 at that point, um, just thought, uh, I've got to get in the queue for a drink here, actually. Need some whiskey. Yeah, exactly. So I (laughs) I went for my whiskey uh, at the Emirates bar. So I didn't see this in real time. But yes, it did... It looked to me to be a foul. Did you think the same? Yeah, I thought so. It's, It's a classic of the anywhere else on the pitch, that's a free kick sort of situation yeah. you know what I mean um, I, I just it's, to me it's a penalty and look I get it would have been the slimmest of lifelines but at 2-1 you know you just never know you never know oh yeah and I, I think, mean I think we're, that was we're unfortunate ways back into the game yeah. um, and we were a bit unfortunate and you know we're told there's this sort of higher bar for VAR intervention this season I think generally that is a good thing and uh I probably support that move, but we have been a bit unfortunate in both the Brentford game um, and this game. You know, if you think of the the one where Balogun got taken out in the box, I think last season, both of those probably would be penalties, uh, right or wrong. Um, Yeah, I think that was, that was, that was unfortunate, but you know, it, 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 it's, uh, it's not our biggest issue. Um, What else? I think one of the things that concerns me most, James, is is coming back to this idea of identity and mm-hmm. what we are and what we want to do and how we want to play. And I'm more and more in the dark about that as time goes on because I don't quite know what it is that we are trying to do. And maybe a game against Chelsea isn't the right way to... Um, to judge that. And maybe a game against Brentford, you know, with all that went on before it with the COVID cases, etc., is not the right way to judge that. But we were sort of chatting a little bit last night on on WhatsApp. Mm. And I'm I'm the idea that we will improve, like Arteta was asked afterwards, you know, will this team be better? When we get our players back a hundred percent, it'll be a completely different team, he said. And I can see some logic in that. 
if you get Thomas Partey back in the team, if you get Gabriel back in the team, if you get Martin Odegaard in the team, if you get, um, I can't remember. Oh, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. You get Aubameyang, who actually looked quite sharp when he came on, all things considered. You know, if you start getting those players back into the team, I can understand how there will be improvement because better players make you better, right? They can... Mm. They, they improve you. But I'm wondering, are we just looking at these players coming in and just being better on their own? Or should we not be looking at this as players who are coming in? Like, I, I don't quite know how to explain this or express it properly. But like, if you're saying, this is Arsenal, this is what we are, this is what we're trying to do. And right now we're doing it with these players and they're not as good as some of the other players that we have. But we're going to do this thing. We're going to play this way. And if we plug in a, a center forward who's good, and if we plug in a central midfielder who's good, and if we plug in an attacking midfielder who's good, you can see how in each of those positions, exponentially, we are going to be better. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But I don't see the framework that they plug into. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I, I do think that... Um Particularly the Chelsea game is a tricky one to see that in. I, you know, they're not likely to let us. I mean, they they are they are a lot better than us, and I hate saying it, but they are a lot better than us. Even with our, like, I, I'm not sure we win that game with all those players available. You know, I really don't mm. think that's that's still not the likeliest outcome, is it? Um, which tells you something. I think. Yeah, uh, with those, I think those players do make a difference. I'm not expecting, as I've just said, I'm not expecting those players to make us as good as Chelsea. I'm expecting those players to make us about as good as we were for sort of the second half of last season, which is like, okay. <laughs> not amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it was good enough to, you know, we all know the results it produced, blah, blah, blah. We all know the you know the second half of the season. If that was a league, where would we stand? Blah blah blah. We all understand that, but um, I don't think it's going to make us great. But I do think it will make us better. As for the plan, I mean, what I said to you yesterday on WhatsApp, which I sort of I sort of stand by, is that like some players are the plan. Like Thomas Partey mm. transforms what we can do in midfield. I think as I, good as Sabi Lakonga was yesterday, and I thought he was really encouraging. I think he does. And I actually think that, like, in this game, until Aubameyang came on, with respect to Martinelli, I just thought we looked like a team without a centre-forward. I mean, it looked like we weren't playing one at times. And that's not to be personally critical of him, but we had no presence or structure or threat in the final third. And I think that is about individual quality, personally. Mm. Um but the points you make are very valid in that, you know, it's that old exercise. If you get, had to give someone, you know, two sentences to describe what Mikel Arteta's Arsenal do or try to do, very difficult to say. It is, you isn't know. it? Yeah. But I think it, I think that um, I think that they're, they're a team who get sort of caught between two stools quite often. They end up kind of not quite being one thing or the other. And that's that sort of amorphous identity is a problem for a manager. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with this. I mean, I hope that when these guys come back, when Aubameyang is fit, when Partey is fit, when Odegaard is fit, when we can, uh, you know, get a fully fit Bakayo Saka back in the team, when mm-hmm. hopefully we have a, a central defence worth talking about, um, when we sort out whatever the fuck we're going to do with right back. I mean, that is, that is a crazy situation, isn't it? Right back. Yeah, I mean, another name that we've not mentioned is Hector, obviously, who mm. wasn't in the squad yesterday, I believe was unavailable. Um, I, I think he probably would have played if he was, to be honest. And uh, again, that's no excuse. But when you see Cedric in that starting lineup, it doesn't fill you with confidence because you know this is a guy Arteta basically hasn't wanted to use for about six months. Um and it does speak to a slightly absurd situation at right back where we have four guys, but none of them are the mm. guy. Um, I do think that that is sort of increasingly, and maybe it's just because we've got other business done, but if there is any life left in this window, I think it has to be focused on that area of the pitch because uh, it's a big, big problem yeah. for us. I mean, the, the selection of Cedric really speaks to the, the the problem we have there because in our final warm-up game of preseason, Cedric was essentially our fourth choice mm-hmm. to play at right back behind Ainsley Maitland-Niles. Mm-hmm. But now he's starting against Chelsea? That's not right you know I'm not going to go to town on the player I think he's you know I think he's quite average I think the deal is just appalling (laughs) one of the worst bits of transfer business we've done to give a guy like that a four year contract at his age Mm -hmm. but the fact that he is starting a game against Chelsea really tells you that there is a problem in that position or a problem with the manager's decision-making when it comes to that position, I don't quite know. And it's not to pin everything on him, of course. The the, the problem was collective, um, you know, really. But, but uh, yeah, I don't know how we can go through a season with that kind of uncertainty at right back as to who is going to be there. Like, I'm, Yeah, I mean, ultimately, Callum Chambers had a bad game against Brentford. Um, got dropped. But if... Ka- yeah, and got dropped. But I, I would sort of say, I, I suppose if Ka- if Arteta thinks Callum Chambers is his guy, then he should be picking him again. Yeah. Like, you know, the fact that he ditched Chambers just speaks to a, a huge amount of uncertainty over that part of the pitch. And um, as for Cedric, I mean, listen, he's not a terrible player. He's tidy enough. I think physically he's a way off, you know, if you compare him to Reese James <laughs> physically, mm. there's a big gap there. Uh, and as he gets older, that gap's going to get wider. And, you know, he was up against uh, Alonso, was it? A left wing back for Chelsea who's about a foot taller and about four yards quicker. And I think that was the problem. Um, yeah, it, it's... I think it's something that needs to be addressed. Mm. I'm not saying that means it will be addressed. I think, you know, more movement is going to be probably dependent on getting people out. But I really hope it is because we need something. We need a right back for sure. Yeah. Yeah, we do. I did enjoy Rob Holding leaving a bit on Alonso. 
Um, so fair play to Rob Holding for that. That was one of yes. the one of the most enjoyable moments of the day. Chelsea fans booing Bukayo Saka. Go fuck yourselves. Yeah, I didn't hear that. I was yeah. at the opposite end of the ground. But was it all hear it. Yeah, you could hear it very clearly on the TV. So that. And uh, I was uh, reliably informed that one of our former goalkeepers may now be at Chelsea, came from Chelsea, mm-hmm. was in the director's box jumping up and down and celebrating Chelsea's goals, which is a bit fucking classless, isn't it, from Petr Cech? Uh Yeah, I would think he'd be better than that, Yeah, to be honest. There's a bit uh, of, like, decorum required in that sense, particularly when you've, you've played for the club. Well, um, that's why, yeah, yeah. I, I'm surprised. I mean, he, he, he generally has carried himself quite well. Um, so, yeah, that's a, a little bit disappointing. Mm. But... Not as disappointing as, you know, the no. result generally. And, and just that feeling of, it's just that feeling of inferiority. You know, it's a horrible, it's a horrible reality to be confronted with how far away we are. And I, and I think, um, you know, I'm in that camp of people that really do think the the absentees are a problem and they are making a, a, a sizable uh, difference. But... I am also in the camp of people who would say that even with them, I think this Chelsea side is good enough to beat us relatively comfortably. Mm. And, you know, they are... Do you know what? There was a guy next to me who very um, loudly was chanting, shit club, no history. And I (laughs) admired him for it. Uh, And I was like, I see where you're coming from there. But I also, it made me a bit sad because I was like, who cares? Like, those Chelsea fans don't care. They're winning. Mm. And in football, history is important, but it's only worth so much. You know, I, I sort of had this slight feeling of like, we sound like Liverpool fans in the 90s, you know, banging on about things that happened 20 years ago. I, I, I did, I, I think culture and tradition are significant. But winning on the day is worth so much more. That's the nature of sport, isn't it? Yeah. And um, that's a chant for a team that aren't winning right now. Mm. Well, then this just brings us full circle to this sort of... Yeah, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the... There was another fascinating interaction um, behind the goal where there was a row... (laughs) A kind of existential debate between two fans about whether or not Granite Shackett was a cunt. <laughs> so <laughs> it was kind of amazing. How so, did what was did they did they lay out their definition of what a cunt is? So so uh, Shaka made a mistake. I think it was a misplaced pass or right. he got caught on the ball. Something you know something like that. And one guy jumped up and was like, "Shaka, you can't!" And then a guy behind him was like, we don't need that sort of thing, you know. Um, let's get behind the team. And he's like, right, so what, you're going to support a loser then, are you? Oh. And he was like, no, I'm just saying, you know, we're supporting the team now. He's like, look. And then the guy turned around and he sort of started asking people around him, right, is Granite Shaka a cunt? <laughs> and it became this whole thing of like people chipping in and being like, well, you know. 
Maybe he's maybe he's Archon. You know, all, there was all this stuff. I mean, in a way, it was great, and I was like, it's fantastic. Welcome back to back. the ground, yeah. But it was also a kind of interesting dialectic about. You know, how do we feel about this team and where we are and how do we be positive in a time that feels fundamentally short of our own expectations? Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, it's a process we're all navigating internally. Um, and, you know, I couldn't tell you, I, I knew what this guy meant. You know, I know mm. what he means. He's like, this isn't good enough. I want better. But the guy behind him is saying, yeah, but this is where we are. Let's let's work with the circumstances we're in. And it's, you know, you see that played out uh, across social media, everywhere. Um, it's a kind of existential debate of, of the, the Arsenal fan right now. Yeah, I mean, brilliantly captured, <laughs> I have yeah. to say. Um, yeah. Well, look, whether or not Granit Xhaka is a cunt or isn't a cunt... Um, the season lies ahead. <laughs> we'll find out in part two when we come to your questions. <laughs> but like the 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 season that lies ahead, I think has bigger questions hanging over it than that one in particular. Even though, like you, I can recognise, you know, what it says about the wider issues that we have. Um, I don't know that we can answer that one today, but we will answer some of your questions in part two. Is there anything else? Actually, do you know, I just want to say before we go into part two that you, you touched on it very briefly. I thought uh, Albert Sambi Lukonga was probably the most encouraging part of, of yesterday from an Arsenal mm. perspective. Um, I think he's got plenty to come to terms with when it comes to the Premier League. Like, just how quick the game moves. There were a couple of moments where you could see him just sort of look around and go, holy shit, you know, the ball's gone like from there to there and I've got to turn around and get back and what have you. But I just thought the way that he tried to play in those circumstances against that opposition, I thought was really positive. So if we're going to finish part one on a positive note, I think that's it. Yeah, he was fantastic. And as uh, listeners will know, my brother's a Chelsea fan and he's the first player he mentioned to me after the game, he thought he was the big bright spot in Arsenal. So it's not just our mm. red tinted spectacles that are seeing it. I thought he was um, really good, actually. Mm. Really good. I mean, to, to play against a team of that quality at that age with that little Premier League experience, I think he already looks like someone who could exceed expectations. You know, he's coming from the Belgian league. I think we thought, well, he might get the odd game here and there. It'll be a sort of, you know a rotation option. I think he'll get plenty of minutes the way he's looking. Um, and that is, <laughs> that is encouragement. I mean, I even thought Nuno Tavares, when he came on, looked pretty good at left back. He's, he doesn't mess about anyway. He's certainly very, very physical. Um, so yeah, there are young players to be encouraged by, but as we've said all through this show, that doesn't assuage the pain of, defeat no. and the pain of where we currently sit and you know we're just trying to kind of muddle through how you balance the optimism of youth with the reality of our circumstance mm. okay well look let's take a break here we do have plenty of questions as you might imagine so we'll come back with those and more in part two right after this
Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog and also on the Arsblog. Did I do your Twitter there? I forgot what I just said. Gunnerblog and Arsblog. I think you said it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, at Gunnerblog and Arsblog. You know, know, they know the drill by now. They know the drill. Also on the Discord server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. So let me ask you this one first, if I might. Comes from. Can, can I just do a quick one first? Because Gold uh, Gold seventy three okay. just said before the second part of the podcast. When you say we'll be back right after this, how long is this usually? Usually, it's um, what two minutes. Yeah, 90 seconds. Yeah, there, thereabouts. Quick, you know, check, maybe a bathroom break. This time Half-time it was a bit longer because we were having a very top secret chat about all kinds of scurrilous yeah. things. But normally it's, yeah, just about two minutes. Just catch our breath, <laughs> reconfigure exactly. our, our brains. Um, okay. Go on, ask your question. I will. It comes from Alistair Wood at Alleyboy82. And he said. In 2011, when low on quality available players, Arsenal lost 2-0 at home to a big six club and then lost heavily in Manchester, resulting in a deadline day trolley dash. If we lose heavily on Saturday, will history repeat itself next week? Well, have we not already done the trolley dash is sort of my question there. I mean, as I recall... The business we'd done in that transfer window, we'd signed Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain um, prior mm. to the 8-2. And Jenko. Uh, Did we not Carl bring in Jenkinson? Jenkinson? That's right, because he made his debut in that game. Um, cheers for that, Arsene. Um, I think that may have been it. I'm just having a look now. Mm. Oxlade-Chamberlain. Maybe we had signed Javinho. As well. I think so, yeah. Did he play at Old Trafford? I don't know if he did. don't remember much about it, so I don't think he made much impact if he did. But then, of course, we went on a, a, a trolley dash after that. I suppose what's interesting is the nature of the players we brought in was experienced, really, and mm. particularly in the case of Mertzaka and Arteta. And we have spent a lot of money already in this window, but quite deliberately not on experience. Um would that change if we lost heavily next weekend? I personally don't think so. I think that Arsenal's have had a strategy for the summer's business and they've kind of stuck to it. I think um, I think there might be a bit more urgency in terms of adding, say, the right back that they need, but I don't expect them to kind of fold back on things and go and get in a couple of senior pros to kind mm. of steady the ship. What do you think? I don't think there'll be a trolley dash because we have signed, what, five players. Yeah. Um, I do think that if we lose and lose heavily to Manchester City, I'm not sure how much pressure there's going to be on transfers as much as the manager. Mm. But... Very true, yeah. I do think that we'd be foolish not to try and sort out the right-back situation. If we can, um, I think there's a good case that, you know, you could bring in a central midfield player as well. 
But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, it feels a bit aspirational. I guess a lot will depend on what happens this week in terms of who's going out. If anybody is going out, I saw some uh, a story from David Ornstein today about Eddie and Kedia, Crystal Palace. In there for 10 million. million. Arsenal won 20 million. They must have been listening to this podcast because, you know, that kind of crazy valuation (laughs) you put in their minds, James, is is affecting their their negotiation skills. So I think, you know, it will depend on who goes out and how many we can um, shift on. But I don't I don't see. I mean, it would be quite typical of Arsenal to like lose to Manchester City and then sign somebody, make a big signing or something to take the focus off it. But Yeah, it, uh, it's not impossible. Mm. Um, I mean, maybe maybe it will be a, 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 a very a pricier option at right back. I do think, you know, that is clearly a position that needs solving in the long term. Um, mm. And if it requires the club to slightly push the boat out, maybe they'll be inclined to do that after another defeat but yeah I don't foresee the trolley dash of a decade ago uh, I don't see that history quite repeating no um, of course Arteta was in, in, the, in that trolley he dash was. he was as was Per Mertzaka mm. both in the club so yeah uh, Haider who's at Haiderjavid underscore 14 I hope that pronunciation is okay Haider says is there any difference between Unai Emery's over or sole reliance on Kolasinac and Arteta's on Tin? <laughs> that is a good question. I mean, the lack of variety in our attacking play is a big, big problem. Big mm. problem. And I suppose you would say that that um, Odegaard coming in is um, is going to help in that regard and getting a striker back might help in that regard. But... To me, this is the biggest question. This is the biggest question about Mikel Arteta is how is this team going to improve from an attacking perspective? How are we going to create more chances? And unless we do something different than give the ball to Kieran Tierney, who may or may not be available for the next little while because he's got another injury, it seems. Mm -hmm. Like we said last week, it's too easy to work out. It's too easy to work out. If you stop that, then what have we got? Not much comes down the right-hand side. I think that's a that's a problem area for us. Um, but no, I don't. I don't suppose there is really, other than the quality of the left back in that tyranny. I think is far superior to Kalasnik. But sure. as a as a as a tactic, getting the overlap and getting the cutback. It's pretty similar, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. I'm hopeful that Martin Odegaard will add more variety to the mm. attack with his guile and his creativity. Um, I, I, Emma Smith Rowe is a really interesting player. Like, I think he's, I think he's fantastic, but I'm not sure he is a defense splitting passer. No, he's at not. All. He's not. He's a guy who will. Who will burst with the ball? He's in yeah. some ways he reminds me a little bit of Thomas Rosicki in terms mm. of how he plays. And yeah, I think you know the, you know the way Rosicki used to like he can carry the ball same as Rosicki. Rosicki's um, you know the way he used to play, the way he used to get close to people and just sort of 
play those combinations to get people in behind and to create space in behind. I think that's much more um, what Smith Rowe is. He's mm. not the the classic number ten. I think Odegaard is much more much more similar in that sense. Like he's a passer. He's the guy who's going to find that pass and pick that pass and and you know create things for people in that way. Whereas Smith Rowe, I think, needs to be close to players. Like his best moments yesterday came when he combined and there was a couple where he drove into the box. But you know they're they're little short five, seven, ten yard combination passes. Um. And I think that could be perhaps an interesting thing from the left-hand side. Yeah, I think that is where his immediate future lies. Um, you know, I think Odegaard is going to come into that number 10 spot and Smith-Rowe will be out there uh, on the left with Tierney. And actually, that was a pretty promising combination um, for much of last season. So I think we'll see more of that. Mm. Um, but yes, it has felt one-dimensional the sort of get it to Tierney and, and uh, hope that his cutback finds somebody. I think the only real distinction, as you said, is that Tierney's a better player. Um, but another injury yesterday, I mean, mm. a huge amount of, is asked of him, isn't it, in the course of these games? And you can sometimes see that taking a, a toll on his body. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, between that and maybe just... Maybe he is a little brittle as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I the injury so. record is beginning to get a little bit worrying, to be honest. Um, it it it's, it's concerns me how important both Kieran Tierney and Thomas Partey are and how much we seem to struggle to get them on the pitch. Mm. You know, that yeah. worries me. Here's a question from Daniel Williamson, who's at underscore DAW2503 on Twitter. And he says, has Mikel Arteta moved away from playing out from the back or is this a temporary switch because of absent players? If it's still the plan, is it worrying that after a summer of preseason preparations, preparations, he's not confident enough to do it? And we had a similar question on the Discord from Arteta's Victory Crumpets who says, I consider myself a patient and understanding Arsenal fan and still willing to be patient this season, but why on earth have we stopped pressing and stopped building from the back? We seem to have abandoned any style of play so far this season. Yeah, it's interesting as well in the light of signing a goalkeeper who last last season went long more than any other goalkeeper in the league. Um, mm. I mean, you know, we're told they think he can play a short game as well, but it does make you wonder, is there a deliberate intention to mix it up a bit? Uh, I think so. I think I think that's partly uh, a choice. But... You mean to play yeah. long more often? Yeah. But who are, yeah. who are we playing long to? Nicolas Pepe, well, you know, we're just bashing the yeah, ball yeah. towards Pepe, which is fairly industrial tactic. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think especially in the absence of kind of a Bamiang and Lacazette, it, it, you know, who are you aiming for up there? Even with them, I don't Yeah, think I mean, they're not, that's their not their game, game either, is it? Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's something, it's a tired comparison really, but something Manchester City do very effectively, they mix it up. They do go short, but they do go long too when they want to. And it, it helps them stretch the play a little bit. Um, but it is, uh, the pressing... We don't. I'm not sure we pressed consistently last season. No, but even. we don't. We don't really press at all anymore. Right. 
Do you not think, I mean, when you... When you think about what we do when the opposition has the ball in their own defensive third... Certainly not against Chelsea, we didn't, no. No. I agree with that. But we don't try and... Yeah, I mean, I think there's clearly some sort of instruction to not play out from the back yesterday. I was curious to see what would happen with Leno's first kick. And his first kick was long. Mm. And that tells Mm. you that we weren't prepared to play out from the back against Chelsea. And this sort of comes back to what we were talking about in that first part of the show, where, like, if you have a style and the players that you have playing that style aren't that good at it, but you keep playing with that style, when you bring in better players, do you then improve that style? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Whereas I think we've um, kind of abandoned what Arteta set out to do very early on, whether that's him compromising on his principles, whether it's him being pragmatic, whether it's an air of maybe he's not confident in the players that he has to play that way. And then you have that that other question about, well, why don't we play more to the strengths of the players that we do have? You know, but I don't... Like, if we could... It's tricky, though, isn't it? Because if he had... If he had played out from the back and they'd made a mistake, he'd be hammered for that as well, you know? Um, but is that not is that not something that people can... Well, okay, we didn't do it well in that instance, but this is what we try and do. This is how we try and play. Some people would have that, um, would be fair with that, but I doubt many would. Um, I think most people would say... Why does he insist on them playing out the back when they're not good enough? He should have cut his cloth accordingly. He should yeah. be more pragmatic. It, you know, it, it's uh, it, when you lose a game, it's your fault. You got it wrong, and that's football. Mm. But I think it, I, it'll be really interesting to see when Ben White is there, and maybe when Gabriel is there. How do we play out? Do do we play short? Do we play longer? If we're playing longer, as you say, who on earth are we aiming at? Yeah. Um, you know, Tammy Abraham had a pretty decent debut for Roma last night. He would have been a striker who you could chuck stuff up to. I'm not sure we've got but one right now. Mm. So, you know, and, and we saw how effective Lukaku was at that, by the way, in terms of being someone you can aim the ball into their feet, into their chest, the ability to pin a centre-half, to bring others into play. You know, we 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 didn't have that at all. Mm. I think Arsenal's attack. Um, this is just sort of a personal hunch of mine. Needs one of Martin Odegaard or Alexandra Lacazette because I think they're the players who can provide a kind of um, hub at the centre of the wheel. And if you've got Odegaard, you don't have to have Lacazette because you can have a Bamiang and I think it still works. I think without either of those two, we got a lot of spokes <laughs> and no hub. That's how it seems to me anyway. I felt like Arsenal just looked like they didn't have a reference point in the final third yesterday. It was a lot of, you know, a lot of peripheral stuff. Um and I and and I didn't say this in part one, but you know, Martinelli, Saka, Smith Rowe. They're really young players, and and I and I understand that you know sometimes they're going to be inconsistent or struggle. I was actually quite disappointed in Nicola Pepe I, as the senior man of that four. I did actually hope for a bit more from him, personally. Mm. 
I mean, we had a question here from Jess Guna, who's at Jess of ARQ, who mm. says, have we grossly overestimated the potential of Martinelli when starting through the middle? He's been largely anonymous. Love the player. Say it isn't so. We had a question like this last week and I nearly asked it. It was something like, what's your controversial Arsenal opinion? Mm. Is there a... a, a my slightly controversial opinion, and I, I promise it's not informed by the Chelsea game, is that I do think that the expectations around Martinelli are a little high. From what I hear, from what people say, I think a lot of people see him as someone who's going to start a lot of Premier League games and have a big impact. And I, I personally am not sure he's quite in that place yet. Um, say for example someone like Bukayo Saka I, I think is quite far ahead of Martinelli in in how I see them mm. um, and that is quite I, I think that's quite controversial because I think a lot of people kind of see them neck and neck I don't think we've overrated him I, I think he's got loads of talent and I think he's got as Arteta puts it, a kind of special charisma on the pitch. He's got this huge energy. He's got a nose for goal. I'm talking myself into it just with this list, but (laughs) maybe it comes from just a requirement of balance and feeling like, you know, we can't have... I don't think, as much as I love the idea of all those kids out there, you know, Martinelli, Balogun, Smith-Rowe, Saka, I actually don't think that's viable. I think we need to complement that mm. with more assured, uh, more senior performers who have greater presence and probably greater productivity. What do you, you think about Martinelli? I felt sorry for him yesterday. Um, you it know, was a thankless task. Yeah. To be a lone striker in a team like this, which doesn't get the ball to its striker, doesn't create chances in the middle, doesn't deliver into dangerous areas, and you're asking him to play against Rudiger and Christensen and Aspilicueta, mm-hmm. you know, pfft, come on, that's that's a tough gig for a what is he twenty years of age? Like he didn't have a good game. I'm not saying he had a good game or anything like that, but I just felt for him, um, and I do think that sometimes individual assessment of players is difficult when the system, the collective is not great either. Um, True. You know, I, I agree. There's a lot of talent there. There's a lot of potential there. I'm not quite sure where exactly he's going to end up. And I think one of the things that we, we have to consider or have to realize is that, you know, there's a fairly steep learning curve for players, for young players when they come in. Um, you know, someone like Saka, someone like Smithrow, they're going to naturally be involved a lot more because they're playing deeper, because they're playing in areas that we get the ball in, even if we're not a great team at this moment in time, we do get the ball into those areas. Therefore, mm. they can they can be involved. Whereas in this particular setup, what is Martinelli's role other than to finish the chances that we don't make? You know? Yes. Yes, that's that's fair, and you know, it's not like he was you know missing chances yesterday. Mm. Nothing really came his way. Do you think he he is a centre forward, or do you think he is a, a wide player? Do you have an instinct on that? My instinct is a bit more. 
center forward, but not like a Lukaku center forward, if you know what I mean. Mm. I think he's somebody who can maybe play a bit more on the shoulders mm. of the defenders, but, you know, sample size is really small with him as well. Um, I think he's somebody you want running towards goal onto the ball or with the ball. I'm not sure he's necessarily a guy you want out on the wing trying to create or deliver or 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 be that kind of a um what you might consider a classic winger with that kind of output you know yeah i think he'll end up a center forward I yeah do. i think probably yeah. um, i think he might be more comfortable in the wide areas for now but i do think that's his eventual trajectory mm. um but it was a very difficult day from yesterday and i thought it was the right decision to pick him there I mean Aubameyang Aubameyang can't have been considered that fit because he would have been on at half time to be honest if he was the fact that they waited at all yeah I think shows that they didn't think he was ready but he did look as you said quite sharp when he came on and he thought he did improve us um so that's good news in terms of you know getting him back and part of the team Lacazette was at the game yesterday so presumably his Isolation is over. I had a question actually about mm-hmm. um, COVID and stuff. Malik Bergman on the Discord said, Morning, gents. Now that we appear to be in a post bubble Premier League, I'm increasingly of the opinion that the key variable that will determine a club's fortunes this season will be the extent to which they can control COVID outbreaks in their squads. How sympathetic are you to Arsenal's current plight, especially considering they did appear to attempt to get the Brentford game cancelled? It seems like the Premier League is emphasising personal responsibility on this and it's up to the clubs to ensure their players are vaccinated and behave responsibly outside of work. And then he says, if Arsenal players are getting COVID due to risky behaviour and are not recovering quickly because they refuse to be vaccinated, then personally, I think Arsenal have only themselves to blame. Um, Well, look, the thing that I would say is that you cannot mandate really players to be vaccinated you can encourage it and i think arteta said that in his press conference at the weekend or you know before the game that they're they're trying to educate some of the players i think is what he said um you know and get them vaccinated and um i mean the 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 reality is that there are no restrictions anymore no, in England, it's. I'll be. I mean, I'm living here. I'll be honest. It's basically a free for all. It's, like, yeah. it's. You know, it's like it's and, not happening. And even if players do take personal responsibility, you are because of the the um, because of how easily this virus spreads and how this particular variant spreads. You know, you could go to the supermarket and get it. Your kids can go to school and bring it home. You know, so. I yeah, do, and I, it should be no great surprise, should it, that no. a club with one COVID case. Is going to get more. more. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Can they tell players not to, you know, live life? If everybody else is allowed to live life, whether it's risky or not risky or whatever, um, I don't know that they can necessarily tell them to do that. So I think it is going to be uh, be a reality for clubs this season. And this is why I'm curious as to what what the threshold is for, like, if a club gets four or five COVID cases, will they get their game cancelled? Like we know yeah, that- I mean, it felt like Arsenal got involved. You know, that feels quite political, doesn't it? To, to, to mm. have the opening game go down to COVID. 
would have looked terrible for the Premier League. Yeah, I but, but I mean, it, let's say ahead of the Man City game, Man City get four players who have COVID, who come down with COVID. Can they get their game cancelled? I don't think they can because we had four and we weren't allowed. So, you know, what is the threshold then? What is the threshold where, like, there's a, a duty of care and responsibility and personal yeah. safety for for not just the players, but everybody at the club? Because well, last season they were cancelling games if there was one case, you know. Um, exactly. Right and and it pandemic. seems, it does seem from what Arteta has said that, like, a couple of the players were affected quite badly by their bout with COVID. Aubameyang was bedridden. Mm. Um, whether he's vaccinated or not vaccinated, I don't know. I mean, it's not for us to speculate on 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 that side of things. You would hope that they are because it 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 you know it doesn't stop you getting the virus, but it stops the worst effects of the virus. It makes it more mild. It, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know. So we've had players who you know haven't been seen for a while. Maybe they're badly affected by COVID. And look, you don't want anybody to to suffer from this virus or pass it on, or give it to somebody who might be a bit more vulnerable. Um, so I don't know, really. I think we're scratching the surface of it, um, to be honest. And I think the Premier League is going to be afflicted by COVID, for sure. Um, yeah, well, I think we're just the first club to, uh, this season, really, um, you know, suffer it. But there will surely be many more. Um, mm. and, I, and I don't... You know, I've seen people saying, is this professional? You know, Arsenal players getting COVID or... I, I, I don't really have concerns over that. I think that, as you say, England's very much unlocked. There aren't really restrictions. It's not as if people are breaking the law. Um, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and, and in that sense, I do have sympathy for the club. I have sympathy, you know, from the perspective that they cannot force anyone to get the vaccine if they don't want to get the vaccine no they can't they can encourage them and they can advise them and they would say this is preferable we would like you to get the vaccine because if you get covid then you're not going to be as badly affected but they can't literally force somebody to get it if they don't want to get it so whether that informs other aspects of how uh, a player's future or career is dealt with at the club, that's a different thing. But this this is all going to play out, you know, in general uh, in general terms, we might know that a player has got COVID, but we're not going to know whether or not that player is vaccinated. And that kind of information is private. Um, you know, for me, I would urge everyone, if they could, to get the vaccine, because if you get this thing, you know, you don't know if you're going to be the exception you know, young, yeah. fit men are, are you know, probably better at withstanding what the virus brings than, than other, asp- uh, other um, people in society, older people or more vulnerable people. But there are always exceptions. And you don't want anybody to be really, really sick or, or, God, you know, for something really terrible to happen or for them to suffer from, you know, some of the longer effects of COVID. Um, yeah, yeah, you just yeah. don't want that for anyone. So... In that sense, I do have some sympathy for the club because it's it's a really difficult situation to manage. It is. It is. Um, I think the only thing, you know, in terms of it being a sort of a, a defining thing for the season, the only thing, yeah, silver lining, I mean, aren't many to come by, but I suppose if you've got it, 
you as an individual are probably have some protection at least for mm. a number of months. You know, if you if you tear your hamstring, you don't get antibodies against future hamstring strains. If anything, you're probably more yeah. vulnerable. Um, I guess once you've had the illness, assuming there are no long-term effects, you will have a, a degree of protection for a period of time, as far as I understand. Mm. It. So there is that. Um, you know, maybe it's not the worst thing that Arsenal are kind of experiencing their own little mini wave uh, at the outset of the season. But it's, yeah, it's it's going to be a very difficult situation for all clubs to to manage this year. Okay, it's uh, my one, is it? Yeah. Um, okay, uh, we've got a couple around the manager. Um, Dazzy Pepper on the Discord says, zero points from our first two games, already resignation among the fan base. And James, he says, uh, we're unlikely to get anything against City. After the interlull, it will be Norwich at home, Burnley away, then Tottenham at home. What does Arteta need from those games to keep your confidence? He could plausibly get us to where we need to be this season. And also on the Discord, uh, DJ Bowen says, can we assume that the earliest Arteta gets sacked is after the Spurs game? For me, if he doesn't have seven points from the first six matches and is out of the League Cup, I've seen enough. I'd like to think I'm not being too harsh, but it's just what a big club would do. I wonder why I'm separate from the fan base. (laughs) The fan base and And James. James, That weird man who goes to the games, um, but is not a fan. I I think, well, can I ask you a little mini question? Sure. How important do you think this game with West Brom is on Wednesday? Like, does does Arteta need to win that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he needs to win. He needs to win a game. We're two games in. We haven't scored. We haven't won anything. It's a game against a championship side, albeit in the League Cup, and we need to win. And I'm not saying his future depends on the West Brom game or anything like that. But I think the sooner we we correct our course, if you like, the better. And do you think that will play into the selection? I think it might. Yeah, I think it might. I think. I mean, he's not got loads of options. As no, a, exactly. As exactly. But I think it may well... Yeah, I mean, I think he'll pick a relatively strong team for that one. Because, I mean, he doesn't have a great deal of rotation to do anyway. Might get Odegaard in the team, which would be good. Um, mm-hmm. Get some fitness into some of the guys who are struggling a bit for fitness right now. Yeah, maybe Ramsdale get a striker back in the team. Get Aaron Ramsdale's debut. Um, so it is important, but you know, this is this is the this is the sixty four thousand million billion dollar question, right? Because a team that or a club that gives a manager so far one hundred and thirty million pounds to invest in new players, mm. it feels like they would be prepared to give him time to work with those players. Mm -hmm. But if Arsenal get to the end of September and, you know, let's say things don't go as well against Norwich and Burnley as we would like, and then you get to a North London derby, it becomes really difficult. Doesn't it? Well, this yeah, and there's two sides to this. I mean, well, there's one what we might do as fans, or what we think they should do as fans, but then what they will be thinking as a club. Yes, what I meant more was that yes, they have backed Arteta, and I have to be honest, I don't think there's any indication that they're preparing to get rid of him anytime soon. But the signings that they've made, as has been remarked upon by many people, 
are kind of future-proofed a little bit against managerial change. Mm. So as much as they've given Arteta a load of money, they have spent it on young players who you'd like to think could make a contribution to any coach's squad yeah. over the next five yeah, years. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's not like, yeah, it's not like Arteta said, I do, you know, I'm trying to think of an example. Like, you know, when Unai Emery, there was all the talk about, um, was it Ever Benega? Were we going to get Ever Benega? And yeah, he was yeah, like yeah. the key or Danny Parejo, someone like that. Steven and Zonzi. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like they've gone and got a player that sort of feels specifically tied to this manager. It feels like they've bought players, I think, in a relatively sort of sensible profile who should be able to contribute regardless. Mm. So there's safety in that, but also not safety in that for Arteta. In terms of when he comes under pressure, I mean, if he loses two games this week, it will be very ugly, I think. I think he needs a result against West Brom yeah. just for, in terms of the mood and the atmosphere. Having not got anything at Brentford, you know, I, I think people were sort of, I'm not going to say comfortable, but they were able to kind of reconcile the possibility that we might lose to Chelsea and Man City. But Brentford and West Brom mm. are a different kettle of fish. Um, if we come away from those three with nothing... It won't look good. Norwich goes without saying he has to win. Burnley, I think. You've got I to win that. that. You've got to win. This yeah. is Arsenal. You've got to win with all due respect to Burnley, taking nothing away from them. We know they're difficult opponents. We know they're tough to play against. But you're at Arsenal Football Club and you've spent £130 million in the summer. And I know the signings aren't all first-team signings. I know some of them are potential, etc., etc. But... If you're, if we're in a place where we're sort of saying, well, maybe a draw away against Burnley would be all right, I think we're in a bad place. Okay, I think we may be in that place, <laughs> I, I, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, I think Tottenham looms large, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, I don't realistically think Mikel Arteta will be sacked um, in September. I, I, I personally think that he will get. Almost, unless uh, unless it is apocalyptically bad, I think he will certainly have until kind of November time. Mm. That's my impression. You know, it'll be like Unai Emery. You know, he he got to November um, in a pretty bad run, and I think Arteta would be afforded at least that. Yeah, if he can't do get you, the team, do you tend to agree. Yeah, I tend to agree. I tend to agree. I think if he can't, if we're in November and, you know, we're sitting in the bottom half of the table and there's no improvement in the way that we're playing, when we've got our players back, when nobody has COVID, when nobody's injured, when everything is Goldilocks, everything is just right. There are no more, like, it just always feels like there's a reason and I, I get some of them. I think some of them are valid. It, it always feels like there's a, well, as soon as this happens, or if this happens, or when this happens, we can judge properly. But I think three months into the season, if we're languishing in the bottom half of the table, that's enough time, even with all the other things that are going on, to, to make a, a judgment and an assessment that where we are is not where we should be. And that's something has to change. Yeah, I had a good debate. I think it was on Arsenal Vision podcast about 
excuses, you know, as Arsenal fans, as football fans more generally, do we always kind of look for an excuse, an explanation for why we aren't successful? And does that disguise a sort of deeper problem? And I, my reaction to that is that I think both things can sort of be true. I think it is true that Arsenal are missing the absentees, mm. but it is also true that they're not a complete panacea will solve all the problems. Mm. Like, you know, there are other issues in this team and in this club. Um, so, yeah, but I, I do think that Arteta will be given more patience from the owners than he will from the fans. Yes. I, I would say, with some certainty. I think that's right. I think that's right. Let me just uh, follow up one here uh, from the Discord. We'll do some quick ones to, to finish off. Gezi Boy says, Is it a coincidence that the two games with fans back are those in which we've seemed the most disorganised? You could see Mikel frantically trying to get instructions out during the game without being heard. Are we now a team mm. without any creative freedom and without an ingrained structure? I thought that was quite an interesting one. Yeah, because we talked about it a lot, didn't yeah. we, in the, in the kind of period without fans how how um attentive arteta seemed and how detailed in his instructions and how that wasn't sustainable and we talked about that situation on the left hand side with reese james overlapping and how mm. no one was with him and maybe in an empty stadium it's easier to uh, transmit a message that changes that um well this is the reality of football and yeah. you know the the version where Arteta was able to give quite detailed instructions to players and be heard, that was the distortion. This is what it's supposed to be like. So this is how it has to work. And this is the football we all want to see with a full Emirates stadium and the manager's absolutely drowned out. And actually, like, as as bad as the season has been from an Arsenal perspective to date, I have absolutely loved... Um, even just watching other games or clip clips from other games, it just feels like someone has breathed life into football again. Um, so I'm grateful for that. But, you know, basically what, what I'm saying is if that is a problem for Arteta, it's a big problem because, mm. you know, this is what he's going to face um, for the rest of his managerial career. Do you think it's uh, affecting us? It's hard to know yet because it's only been two games. But, you know, ultimately, you know, the job of the manager is to prepare his team all week on the training ground. And when they go out on the pitch, they have to have some measure of expression themselves. They have to know mm. what, the what you know, what way we're going to play, where we're supposed to be on the pitch. You know, those things are, are things that should be set in stone when you're you're preparing for a game. Yeah. After that, yeah. like a manager can't micromanage. You cannot micromanage. Was it Louis Van Hal or something who said like these managers who stand there shouting on the on the touchline, you know, they do it to make themselves I'm paraphrasing here a bit, but they make themselves look good. You know, it makes them look energetic or involved or whatever it is. But ultimately, like the guy who's twenty yards away from you can't hear you because of the crowd. Yeah, the work is done. The work the should work be done, done beforehand. And then, you know, if you need to get instructions on at some point, you can. Obviously, you you know, when there's a little break in the game, you can call someone over and you can adjust certain things here and there. Um, but 
really, I think it's it quite limited done. though how much you can actually yeah. affect the game without it being okay we're going to plan B you know that we yeah. practiced and worked on and yeah. prepared and actually a lot of what you see from managers I think is them kind of living the adrenaline and the emotion I mean think of Unai Emery you know all that hand waving it's it's for him it's so that he feels connected to the game mm. and connected to the fans I don't think he realistically believes uh, he's affecting what happens on the pitch with that, you know? Do you think that's the case with Mikel Arteta, though? Because I I feel like he is maybe a bit more of a control freak, maybe sounds a little harsh or whatever, but I do feel like he wants to, like he's playing football chess, he moves the pieces. Yeah, I do. But then it's interesting because in press conferences, he always seems to say, well, we'll see another dimension to this team when we have fans back in the stadium. Mm. Um, There seems a bit of a contradiction there. Uh, I mean, look, we've had one home game, right? It's difficult to know against maybe the best team in the league. Um, Mm. Certainly one that's up there. It's difficult to know how the dynamics of a crowd will affect our performances. Yeah. But it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like a kind of marriage made in heaven, you know, between uh-huh. an Arteta team and a, a, a what's the, a, a, a hungry crowd. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't feel like a good fit right now. Um, but we'll have to wait and see, I guess. All right. Until November. Yeah. <laughs> Gone till November. Yeah. Uh, who knows? I mean, if things go really badly, you never say never in football. Um, that's true. That's just my instinct. Have you got one or? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I do probably, but I. They were sort of similar themes. When would you fire Arteta? Yeah. Um, Let, let's do some quick ones because I've got a few here that I think are oh, quite interesting. Then. So let's do some quick ones. Um, Matthias, who's at Hugo underscore Gunnar, says, Hi, guys. If Mikel Arteta isn't able to turn things around and, en- and ends up getting the old boot, the old mm. boot, uh, do you think the recording of the documentary will have a negative impact on the recruitment process of a new manager? As in, will we have less candidates interested in the job because of the prospect of having a camera shoved in your face following uh, following you around all day? Uh, because that's not very pleasant. Yeah, I mean, Spurs obviously appointed Mourinho, didn't they, I think? Um, oh, no, they, they didn't. They appointed him prior to the documentary. I think he was maybe fired during the filming of it. But there was some sense that anyway that, you know, they wanted to project this image of them as like a global super club and it was felt that a mm. big name manager was part of that. Uh, I think that it would be an inconvenience to any incoming manager, but probably not sufficient to put them off um and i suspect if they were coming into the club they might be able to be like right well mm. this is what i'm prepared to do and this is what i'm not prepared to do mm. you, you've got to hope so right i mean it would be a disaster if it if it felt like it was genuinely affecting things at that level yeah i don't think what it do would think? make a like if I don't think that would be a deal breaker for any manager because they're used to having cameras and stuff like that. But, you know, there's some a, managers... There's a groundswell of some... Like the name Antonio Conte is being banded around a lot, isn't it, on social yeah. media? Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that's, like, plausible? 
Like, do you think I mean, he I'd, would want to come and manage Arsenal? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, he's a very high-profile manager with a lot of success under his belt, and you can see why people would be interested in him if Arteta were to get the boot. If things don't improve, you could easily see why, um, you know, they would be, or he would be top of people's list. But whether he would want to come or not, I don't know. I guess it depends where we are and what he thinks he could achieve. Um, mm. You know, he, he wasn't slow to, to get out of Inter, was he, when things weren't going great there, so... Mm. Yeah, interesting. I mean, yeah, this documentary is going to be interesting viewing, I mm. think, whatever happens. Dean Van Wyn says, how confident are you that Arsenal can regain the league title by 2034 when they'd match Liverpool's 30-year drought? It seems crazy, but that's only 12 seasons after this one, and the path back to the top for Arsenal doesn't seem easy or obvious. So on a scale of 1 to 100, how confident are you that Arsenal could win the league title by 2034? Low. Low for me. I think I see a lot of comparisons between Liverpool's kind of 90s funk and where we are now. Um, And I think it could be as... uh, difficult a climb back up I think if anything the circumstances are are more difficult than what they face because of the expansion of wealth of other clubs mm. and how competitive the landscape is now so yeah. I would say uh, how confident am I we will end winning the league title by 2034 probably about like 25% maybe you know it mm. could happen but I think it's more like I think it probably feels more likely to not mm. I would say about 7%. Oh, really? Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it'll all click. very quickly. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it'll all click at some point. And maybe the, you know, we'll get the right manager um, and things will come together and we will be competitive and and what have you. But right now, it's very difficult to see that as a a possibility. Um, Here's. Here's one from Serge Designs. Who's that Serge Designs who says, what are your thoughts on Willian liking Chelsea's Instagram posts? Just a silly action by a careless player or a microcosm of the mess we're in? And if people um, don't know what this is, Chelsea posted on their Instagram, uh, 2-0 win over Arsenal. And it was the caption was something like, can you imagine not being Chelsea or something like that? And Willian liked it. Yeah. Um, I think I think he's done at Arsenal, William, isn't he? And, and we all know it. Mm. I think it's optically, it's really bad. Um, I think with social media and footballers, you've always got to be a bit careful because it's not entirely clear who's running it all the time. Um, so you can kind of give a bit of benefit of the doubt there. Also, sometimes they don't see it the same way as us with kind of rivalries and allegiances, but. Mm. Yeah, I think it's just the latest in a kind of litany of moments that make you reflect on what a disastrous deal that's turned out to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Williams' Arsenal coffin does not need a final nail, but if it did, that would have been it. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, I, I think I'll know your answer on this, but Tom F on Twitter says, um, when did we become so obsessed with whether a centre-back is left or right-sided? We used to just play the best defenders. Now Murray's left-footed and it seems to trump whether he's actually the best man for the job. I mean, do you think there's a case to drop him 
uh, based on yesterday. Yeah. You know, irrespective of the fact he's our left-footed guy. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. I, I think I so. Too. You know, I think... Um, like, I don't think Rob Holding was brilliant. He was okay, though. He was okay. Should have scored, probably. Yeah, he should um, have. Should have. Um, yeah. But look, I think we're suffering from a, a, a paucity of central defenders. I mean, I know there's a... This will spark a whole other debate, and we just don't have time for it. But, like, what the level of Pablo Marie's performances say about William Saliba... And I don't mean this to be negative. Like, you can't tell me that William Saliba... I'm not saying he would have, like, dominated Lukaku or anything like that. I think he, as a young defender, would have found him tough to deal with. But there's nothing that you're seeing from Pablo Marie that makes you think sending William Saliba on loan is really a good idea. No. I understand he had a good performance for Marseille. The weekend as well. What a crazy game that was! Did you see all the fucking? Shit I haven't that went quite. I, I saw bits and pieces. Yeah, seemed absolutely mad. Mental, um, crazy stuff. I think Marseille on the pitch will be entertaining enough. Uh, to be honest, this season with the formation they're playing and the style of football. But mm. um, yeah, you can't help but reflect on that and think, "Crikey, what must they think of William Saliba?" Yeah. Right, look, we got to leave it there because we've been going too long and we've all got to go about our days and, uh, you know, get on with things and get ready for, for this big game against West Brom on Wednesday. <laughs> um, so, look, we, we'll see what happens there. Uh, as ever, thank you guys uh, for being here. Thank you for listening. Uh, thanks for sharing in the, the, the dark times, I guess. And hopefully yeah. sunshine is around the corner. Maybe some catharsis too. Yeah. Exactly. What do you reckon? Four nil win over City on Saturday <laughs> or Sunday? Is it Sunday? Saturday morning, I think. Saturday oh, lunchtime. Oh god. Yeah, they're the worst. Oh, I think. Oh my god. Um, and yeah, I think it's the first time we'll have played in this round of the League Cup for about twenty-five years. So um, yeah, let's see how we get on. Right. <laughs> It's very difficult to have a good feeling about it, even that game. Yeah. You know? It is. It is. Until... We're coming in with no form, no momentum. Exactly. Until good things start happening, it's hard to think about good things. Mm. You know? It is very Absolutely. easy to wallow at this moment in time. But concerns that people have and worries that people have and, and all of the rest are, are being borne out by what we're doing on mm. the pitch. Simple as mm. that. There's not much there that gives you cause for optimism even if you are very firmly in the when we get players back we'll be better camp until we get those players back we still have football to play so let's see what let's see what we can do in this coming week hopefully hopefully um you know it can be a little bit better i did like that Mikel arteta quote hopefully things will get better he said after the match <laughs> well we can all agree with that we can all agree with that okay look let's leave it there as ever thank you very much indeed for listening and we will catch you on the next one bye bye Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. 
Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 